Well, it's good to have you here. Let's just turn in the, the Bible to, uh, to uh, Matthew chapter uh, 5. And we're in a series, like we said, that we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Some more important things than a groundhog or a, uh, a pigskin. Some things that can challenge us uh, uh, to the ways of eternal life and to uh, live out the calling that Christ has for us. And over these last couple months, we've been in part 2 of a four-part series. And the reason why we have a four-part series is I believe Jesus breaks his sermon down really into four parts. And we're coming to the end of, of part two. And over these past couple weeks, we have seen what Jesus has laid out as the Christian manifesto, uh, the portrait of what true Christianity is to look like. And uh, we've been doing this uh, by learning what it means to be salt and light, to learn what it means with regards to our anger and lust and divorce and and oaths, and revenge, and retaliation. And we come today to what is, in essence, the pinnacle of all that Christ has been teaching us about in loving our enemies. Now, it has not been easy for you to hear um, a lot of this teaching. A lot of this teaching is difficult for us to embrace, but it's the truth of God's Word. And I know it hasn't been easy for me to preach uh, these texts because these are hard things for us to know and understand, and because of our own uh, rebellion and sin. Some of us have found ourselves in, in stark contrast to what God's Word says. And for many, uh, you may be divided that you want to hear the truth of God's Word, but Sermon on the Mount is not your favorite passage of Scripture. And I, I found this, uh, and I think this is a good for us to hear. In 1958, the Christian Century magazine published an article by Dr. Normal Pittenger entitled A Critique of C.S. Lewis on the Sermon on the Mount. Pittenger criticizes C.S. Lewis for a statement that Lewis made in the article of not caring much about the Sermon on the Mount. And Lewis had the opportunity a month later to respond in a, a rebuttal article in which he says, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one then cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine, listen, a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man or a woman who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. We've come to understand that Jesus has articulated some hard truths in the Sermon on the Mount. He has said in the middle of chapter 5 that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he illustrates that point with six very pointed uh, illustrations that give us a glimpse of what the Christian life is to look like. Each of those six that we've seen starting with anger in verse 21 shows us how impossible it is to pursue the righteousness of Christ in our own strength. Ken Hughes, a pastor once said that each line of this sermon that is taken to the heart will literally flatten us because it is totally impossible for us to do. Now I know that over these past couple weeks there's been some great consternation as we've waded through some difficult passages of Scripture. And some have said what, what Jesus is saying is hard. It really hurts. It's painful at times to, to think that what Jesus is saying is what he requires of me. Some years ago when I was at my catering shop, I was cutting some pork chops on a large bandsaw. And as I was cutting, of course, you want to keep everything else away from the uh, blade, but I didn't. And I cut a, 
a, a large uh, cud uh, and opened up my index finger, something, something pretty fierce. And it was so bad that they were worried because of where the cut took place and, and, and the kind of cut that it was that it would never heal properly. And as a result of that, my index finger was scheduled to be amputated. And uh, as a young man, I think I was only about 20 at the time. I, you don't want anything amputated, of course. But I remember really being fearful of that, not wanting to lose my finger. And, uh, and they were concerned, of course, of, of things like gangrene and infection. And I remember uh, the next couple days it was touch and go and whether the medication would help. And I remember about the third day my finger started to just burn with this incredibly irritating and, and painful sensation. So bad that I made an appointment with the doctor and I thought for sure this was evidence that the finger was going to have to be removed. And I remember going in and telling the doctor all of it and saying the pain was more than I could bear and, uh, and my fear that my finger was going to be removed, to which the doctor smiled and said he was glad to hear I was experiencing so much pain. And I was like, what are you, a sadist? I mean, what, what kind of doctor are you? And his response was the following. He said, that means it's healing. That's good. Pain is good. And I want to liken that illustration to what we've been dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount, that pain is good. For the child of God who endures sometimes painful teaching, there will be hurts, and it will, it will be heavy at times. Our hearts will be broken. And I want to encourage you, not as a sadist, I'm not here to make sermons painful for people because I must endure under those sermons as you do uh, as well. But I want to encourage you that when we feel that pain, healing and growth are taking place. That if we would set ourselves under this teaching, if we would be confronted by God's word and allow that, no matter how painful God's discipline of our casualness and preconceived ideas of holiness are, that God, though he cuts deep, he always cuts right. And that pain that we experience will always lead us to a harvest of righteousness. So my prayer has been and will continue to be as we endure the Sermon on the Mount together is that we will bear under this difficult teaching and experience the painful yet need, needed work of maturity that the discipline of God's Word will bring. So let me encourage you. Last week I told you that the text before us, seven days ago, was one of the most difficult in all of the biblical text. Now we're beyond that one. Here's the problem. The one we have before us today is just as about as difficult. And so there is no uh, reprieve for the difficult teachings of God, not quite yet. So let's look at them this morning. A very difficult passage for us, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find it in the Pew Bible and in front of you on page 811. Page 811. Grab that Bible. We're going to be in uh, page 811, Matthew chapter 5. And then I'm going to have you, after I read this passage, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 6 for a moment and get Luke's um, uh, hearing of the word, which shares a little bit more. So let's look to the word this morning. You have heard that it was said, you shall not love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For God makes his son rise on the evil 
and on the good. And God sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's turn for a moment. We'll be back in Matthew chapter 5. But turn for a moment to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. In your pew Bible, you'll find this on page 862. Luke chapter 6, verses 27. We'll go through verse 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have sung of your praises this morning. We have gathered around your table, reminded of the truth of your amazing love for us. Now, Lord, we submit ourselves to your word, the difficulty of it, the countercultural nature of it, But Lord, we are told that when we do so, we will be like you. And Lord, as followers of yours, that is our aim, that is our goal, that is our desire. So Lord, teach us from your word this morning so that we may love our enemies as we love ourselves, as we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As Jesus closes out in chapter 5, the second part of his Sermon on the Mount, we see that he ties everything together in a treatise, if you will, on love. And I'm going to look at this passage under the heading Tainted Love and show you how our love is tainted if we do not love our enemies as ourselves. And I want you to see how the end of chapter 5 is going to funnel all that we've learned over these many weeks That love truly is the thing that remains. And to be perfect as God is perfect, we must love as God has loved. Now far too many of us will say that these teachings are too hard. But let me remind you that God never calls us to things we cannot do with his strength. So God commands that we love our enemies. And because he commands it through the power of the Holy Spirit we can do it. So let's pray to that end this morning. But to do that, we must see three things this morning. Notice, first of all, in your outlines, the deception of the day. It's like a broken record with the 
with Jesus in regards to the Pharisees. Once again, like he has five times before in this chapter, he has said for the final time, you have heard it said. Once again, Jesus is going to confront the flawed teaching of the rabbis of his day. He's done so on issues like anger, lust, divorce, oaths, revenge, and now loving your enemies. And now he addresses the second part of the great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, you would think they would have gotten uh, the great commandment down, the Pharisees. This was, in fact, the golden rule. Understand, the Pharisees see this truth as a supremely important truth. Remember Hillel, the, the great Pharisee and rabbi of the day, who had spoken so much on the issue of divorce? Hillel said of the great commandment, to love God and our neighbors was the whole law, and that the rest of the law is just an explanation on that one law. Another rabbi of the day said that the calling to love one neighbor was the great principle of Judaism. I wonder if the rabbis and Pharisees of the day were foaming at the mouth as to what Jesus was going to say. Maybe Jesus had gotten a point on the preceding passages and and laws of the Lord. But we've got him on this one. We know what we're saying is right. This is something we've been teaching our kids, something we've been teaching over and over again. And that is true because Jesus, no doubt, had heard this teaching over and over again as he grew up in the temple and as he heard the rabbis speak. But notice, Jesus is going to say, as he has over and over again, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That meant Jesus was going to go against the teachers of the day. That meant that he was going to reorder this law once again. Now, how could he do it? To do it, he would uncover a great deception that the Pharisees and the chief priests had followed. And I will tell you that deceptions, especially when it comes to biblical truth, are deceptive because they always mix enough truth with air. Cults do a great job of having some crazy beliefs that start out sounding really good because there's a a good amount of truth there. But truth is only truth when it's truth 100% of the time. And so what happens is, is what we we will see is what the cults of our day do is they sound real good because they mix enough truth with air and uh, unknowing individuals will follow their beliefs and many of Jesus' day had done so because it's a great deception. Now I want you to see within the text the great deception of the great commandment that was laid forth. And there are three things that show us this deception. Number one, when we look at the text, we see that we are to love our neighbors and hate our enemies. Now I want you to notice the deception involved, first of all, a qualification. And the qualification was, what did the word neighbor really mean? And the people of Jesus' day said that the neighbor that you were to love was a person of the same skin color, a person of the same religion, a person of the same creed. It had to be a Jewish neighbor. And so in essence, the text would say you are to love the neighbor who is just like you, who believes like you do who votes the same way you do, who prays to the same God as you do. Your neighbor is to be like you in all ways. That is who you are to love. And Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, that our neighbor is not one who is just like us. 
because he tells the great story of the Good Samaritan. And he tells us that a person of a different land, of a different religion, of different beliefs, and different uh, understanding of things is to be our neighbor as well. And so there's this qualification, and we do this all the time. Who is our neighbor? And we say qualified, it's geographically the ones who live in my neighborhood. And we may even limit that down to the ones who live on either side of my house or, or across the street. Those are my neighbors. Or we say our neighbors are those who think like we do. Who have the same morals as we do. Who may not be perfect, but try like we do. And we create these qualifications that help us when we see the the drugged out individual on the side of the street that we don't need to help them because they're not our neighbor. That we don't have to help because they live in a different country. They have a different language, a different culture. They may look at things very differently than we do, but we, just like the Pharisees, qualify who our neighbor is today just as they did in the first century. Notice there's a qualification. Second, there's an omission. So what is the neighbor? Okay, so we're understanding Jesus says all are our neighbors. But then he says, you shall love your neighbor. And, he, and they stop there. And there's an omission. And the omission is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we have one of two ideas here. Number one, we can say that Jesus is being unfair in his assessment. And what he's doing is he's giving a straw man argument, an ad hominem attack. What that means is he's taking part, not whole, of, uh, of the opponent's viewpoint and holding that against him. Or we can believe that Jesus is completely trustworthy and he's speaking truthfully as to what people were believing in the day. And what he's saying is what you are teaching is that I am to love my neighbor, but I don't have to love him as myself. So that means that my love can be limited and still be love. Notice with me that the love that we show ourselves is many ways the greatest example of our love. We love in ways that we know we want to be loved. And that's not bad. We take care of people's needs because we know we want our needs to be taken care of. We serve others because we know we enjoy being served ourselves. And, and that may sound selfish, but what it is is it's a, it's a recognition of the human need and a recognition of what we know we need and extending that love and care and concern for others. They had gotten rid of that. Love them. You define how you love them. And your, love, loves, your love's definition may be vastly different than someone else's and incredibly, of course, different than what God would have. Now, now notice, the Bible makes it very clear how we are to love. Notice in Exodus, turn in your Bibles for a moment to Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. Exodus 23, we've done this each and every week where we've gone back to the Old Testament and we've read the scriptures of what the law says. Now the law is going to now have an addition to it. So there's a qualification, there's an omission, and now there is an addition. And notice in the text that it's going to tell us that we are to hate our enemies. And so now they've added to the law, and the answer was, you need to hate those who are against you. Now notice, this is where Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 come into play. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. Let's stop there for a moment, okay? So if you find your, your enemy's donkey where it doesn't need to be, or where it could be harming itself, you're to take care of it, minister uh, to it as if it's your own. Now turn in your Bibles for a quick moment to the book of Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. Remember that in mind. What are you to do with an enemy's donkey? Okay? And to liken it today, what do you do with an uh, enemy's Chevrolet or Honda? Okay? What about their stuff? What am I supposed to do with it? But notice what the law says with regards to what you're to do with someone else's stuff. Now notice he brings up someone else. Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4. This is on page 164 in your pew Bibles. You shall, you shall not see your brother's ox or a sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if you do not live... If he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any other lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. 25, Matthew 5. And in the text, we are told that the Pharisees and the rabbis said, okay, how you are to love your neighbor is dependent on you, and now you're to hate your enemy. And the word says in those two passages that we are to care for our enemy just as we would want cared for ourselves. And the reason why I read those two passages is one that says, okay, this is how you're to treat your enemy's donkey. And then the other passage says, this is how you're to treat your brother's donkey. Notice in the text that your enemies, what you're to do to your enemy's donkeys isn't just here, and then your brother's donkey, you're supposed to do this. If you notice, the same terminology is used. Care for them. Do what you would want done with your property and your stuff. And so the same way we are to love our brother is the same way we are to love our enemy, and the way we are to do that is to love as we would want others to love us. And so here in the text, Jesus has reordered this law-breaking once again. He's addressed it a qualification, an omission, an addition by saying the following, you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now in one statement, Jesus is calling us to see the world and even the most difficult people in our lives in a very different way. To obey this command, is to go, listen, against every natural and social fiber in our being. But he says the same love that we show those who we care about is the same love we are to show our greatest of adversaries. To understand that, we've got to understand what Jesus is talking about. And notice in the outline, there's a definition of what it means to be an enemy. Okay. So Jesus says, you've got to love this person. Well, who is this person? Jesus defines them as an enemy. Well, what does that mean? Well, the enemy there is the Greek word ekthros, which means one who is hateful, hostile, and contentious. He's an enemy that is antagonistic towards you, who seeks to injure, overthrow you as their opponent. Ekthros means 
that one has in word and actions a desire to manifest hatred towards you. So maybe it's an in-law who refuses to speak with you. Maybe it's a work associate who's trying to get you fired. Maybe it's someone in the neighborhood who longs for you to have nothing but hurts and pains. The list goes on on who our enemy could be. Now notice an enemy is one who does something. Notice in the text at the end of verse 44. Your enemy are those who persecute you. That word persecute means to literally follow or press hard after, as if a wild animal is pursuing their prey, to chase, harass, vex, and pressure. It's spoken of in the judicial system as officers chasing down a criminal and doing so until they catch him. The word persecute is the Greek word diakol. It speaks of an intensity of effort leading to pursue with earnestness and diligence in order to lay hold of the one they want to oppress. The word persecute there is shared in the present tense, which means it's happening on a continual basis. So how does this persecution take place? What are the enemies? To understand that, we've got to go back to Luke chapter 6 for a moment. Luke chapter 6. And in there, Luke defines an enemy by three activities that they do. Number one, you are to do good to those who hate you. There's number one. You are to bless those who curse you. There's number two. And you are to pray for those who abuse you. And so I will help you. An enemy is one who hates you, hurls insults at you, and who hurts you. Those are the three. Write those down this morning. And we're going to address each and every one of them. Hates you, hurls insults at you, and hurts you. So let's look at the hate you first. It literally means they detest you. You make them sick. You have no positive qualities about you, and that's why they feel the way they do about you. Now this word isn't a casual one, and we share that word, I hate you. I, I hear that drives me nuts with my kids. Well, I hate you, I hate you, and, and they don't even know what they're saying. Because the word hate in its original language is not a casual one, but it's one of great disgust. It is a deep-seated and settled opinion about another. What it means is I've looked at all of you, all of you as an individual, I'm sorry, all of who you are, and I've put it before the jury, and the jury says, just as I do, you're a piece of garbage. And because you're a piece of garbage, because there's nothing good in you, then the only response I have is to oppose you in every way. That's what it means to hate from a biblical standpoint. So what do they do? Understand this. When you have that kind of deep-seated feelings about someone, it will never stay within your heart. So then it moves to hurling insults at you. So they curse you, as Luke says. It means to assail with abusive words, to slander, revile, falsely accuse, to speak despairingly uh, of a uh, person in a manner that's not justified, to find ways to find faults, to demean, to mock, to heap insults upon, to shame. The idea here is to find a way to show the rest of the world how bad you are in their opinion. They'll tell deliberate lies about you. 
They'll attempt to speak through falsehoods, to speak falsely and deceitfully about you. It means that an a enemy will have no limit to the kind of slander and vicious verbal attacks used to present what they think of you. Now notice, and write this down, this hurling of insults is never done in private. But its intention, by its very etymology, that is the definition of the word, the origin of the word, is to soil your name. Thus, the enemy insults with the intention of showing others what they should do as well. So your enemy isn't satisfied in just saying bad things between the two of you, but an enemy is one who then pulls around them others with the intention. So an enemy says, I don't like you. You're a piece of trash to me. And so I think this, but now my intention isn't to be the only one who thinks this. And so I'm going to get others around, and I'm going to say things about you that make you sound terrible so that others will agree with me this is what an enemy does. And so they gather a group of people around them and they lie and slander you so that others will say, yeah, I think so too. I agree with you. And then they will be your enemies as well. But notice it leads to one final thing and that is to hurt you. That is to abuse you, Luke says. Now we know that it's very rare that hatred is only in words only and that it can lead to physical abuse. And there are some who have enemies who are harming you physically who are threatening you with beatings, who are bullying you physically. And these aren't practices of friends, but the practice of enemies. Now, now let me stop there. And you look, and and right away you say, okay, I'm not sure I have enemies. Now, I know there are some that right away you can say, yes, I have enemies. That I have a person in my life who hates my guts, who thinks I'm trash, who hurls insults at me and does so to to soil my name in front of others. And I have one that if he he or she really had the opportunity, they would assail me physically. That's where I'm at. And I would say that there are some of you, and I wish I could say, I'd like to see a show of hands. I'm going to assure you that probably the vast vast majority of us would not say that we have enemies based on that definition. But for those that do, God's word is true love them. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But before I get there, let me stop and talk to what I believe to be the vast majority of us. I got a response from someone who said, Tim, your, your opening question in this week's study guide for small groups was a downer. Nobody had enemies in our midst. And so then it told us that we really didn't have to address this text. Okay? And you're missing the point of Scripture. If God is saying that if you have someone like this in your life, you are to love them, then let me present this to you all that don't have any enemies. And that's okay that you don't. How are you loving those who aren't your enemies? And what I'm talking about is not those who hate you and hurl insults and and hurt you. How about that person in the checkout line that you don't know who's frustrating you? How about that person driving in the car next to you you've never met before, but they did something that angers you? How about uh, your, your spouse or your kids that you have loved? How are you loving them? You know, it's easier. Let me tell you, it's easier for us to disregard God's word when we have someone chasing us down like that. What excuse do you and I have when we don't have someone doing that? When someone just frustrates us or bothers us 
How are you living out the love that is to be extended not only to those you love, but those who bother and frustrate you and those who even hate you and hurl insults and hurt you? You see, for far too many of us, God hasn't given us, listen to me, the privilege of having an enemy because we haven't learned how to love those who aren't our enemies. Because we're called to love all. You see, Jesus leaves no room for speculation in this passage. He makes it abundantly clear. Love those who hate, despise, and persecute you. And that means love everybody that you love, and everybody that you hate, and everybody in between. Such love, though, is only possible through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So now we know, okay, God, you're talking to us. And you're saying we need to love everybody. Even the vilest of individuals, we are to love them. Now, I don't want to miss this, and and I need to make sure I, I do this, because some will walk away, and they have a situation like this. And they say, Tim, you don't understand. The person is the devil. And they may be. The devil may, in fact, be using them to be your enemy in such a way, and we need to recognize that. And so I understand that your enemy may be the worst thing in the world, but you're called to love them. Now, the Word of God calls for us to use discernment and wisdom. And so if your enemy is doing something, that there is recourse. So if you are a spouse in an abusive relationship, I say it again as clearly as I can. Get out of that place. Do not be abused for the sake of abuse's sake. If you find yourself where there's recourse by the law or, or by some higher authority, God is not saying that loving your enemies means not holding them accountable for what they've done. What it means is is you're not going to personally hold that sin against them. That that's not going to be a root of bitterness that grows in you. That's not going to be a place where you sin in your heart or in your mind or in your flesh because you don't like someone who has wronged you. And so if your enemy is doing something where there is legal recourse, use wisdom. Is that a place that you need to love them? And let me tell you something. Sometimes the greatest love you can show an enemy is keeping them from hurting others as they've hurt you. And so recognize there's discernment with regards to that. But the personal understanding that we are to have, what it, what it means is, what does our heart's intention need to be of our enemy? It is to love our enemies at all times. Now, What does that look like? Well, I'm thankful that God in Christ gives us a a job description. And just like last week, we get this passage before us, and what happens is is God, Christ lays it out for us and then applies it through illustrations. And so notice there's a job description that's given. And like last week, we have been given this truth that we are to love our enemies, to do that which comes so unnaturally to us. But why should we do it? Because Christ did it. You see, we get this idea that Christ came to die for you and I when we were reasonably for what God was teaching. But Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The book of Romans chapter 1 says that all sinners are God-haters and hostile to the gospel. And so if you take what God has done, Christ saved you as his enemy. He showed his love to you and to me while we were enemies of God's. 
God-haters, insolence, in rebellion, going our own way, shaking our fist at God, saying, stay out of my business. You cannot tell me what to do. And God shows us how we are to love. And so what we are called to is to love as Christ loved. And to love our enemies as Christ loved his enemies. And so how did Christ do that? There are three things we must do. Number one, we must put ourselves in their world. How was God's love shown? Can I tell you that God's love throughout the Old Testament was always shown with his presence? Let me explain what I mean by that. In the Garden of Eden, everything is perfect. Adam and Eve sin. Only before Adam and Eve sin, God's fellowshipping with his people. They're having nice, cool walks in the evening and, and, and just enjoying one another's company. And then Adam and Eve sin. And what, in, what do Adam and Eve do? It's not a rhetorical question. What do Adam and Eve do? They run and hide, right? Who are they trying to get away from? God. They want nothing to do with his presence. They have now sworn allegiance to God's enemy, the devil. Devil, you're right. God's wrong. We're going to follow you and not follow God. And they do that. And what does God do? God comes looking for Adam. Where are you? Now, he's not asking that because, he, because Adam's really good at hide and seek. He's doing that because he wants to bring Adam back into fellowship. Come on, Adam, I'm here. I want to fellowship with you. And you've got some issues and we need to deal with them. But, but I want to be with you. And what does he do? He makes a, re- a reality for Adam and Eve to have renewed fellowship with them. He slays an animal. He covers their shame and covers their sin by that, by that token offering of the slain animal so that they can have fellowship with him. And over and over again in the Old Testament, you see God's presence with his people while they are sinners. God's the one pursuing mankind, pursuing them in a relationship. Even in uh, Genesis chapter 6, when every inclination of the heart was to do evil in mankind, God went and had a relationship with Noah. And you say, but wait a minute, Noah was righteous. Yes, he was. But what did God do? God took 120 years to build an ark. Every day a reminder hey, I want a relationship with you. And if you would put your faith and trust that I'm going to come and destroy this land and put yourself on the ark, then we're good. And God's love over and over again, we see it in his patience. We see God's love in his patience that he desires none to perish, but all to come to a saving knowledge of his son, Jesus. And that's why he doesn't destroy us the moment we sin, but gives patience to do so. And so we need to put ourselves in the world. Now, this is no more clearly seen than in the incarnation. How does God show his full extent of love? I'm going to share something that that you can check theologically, but I'll say this. God could not have shown the full extent of his love from his throne room in heaven. And that's why he sent the second person of the Trinity to put on flesh and make his dwelling among us. And the reason why is because here he sends Jesus down into the, the garbage pit of earth to walk amongst us, 
to see our frailties in a whole new way, to experience the struggles and the temptations and all the garbage that we've got going in our lives. Jesus leaves paradise to come to a garbage dump and to show love. And what does he show over and over and over again? They revile him. They hate him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And what a reminder for us. You see, it's easy for us, listen to me, to hate someone from afar. But once you get to know them, once you understand who they are, now please hear me. Love does not mean turning a blind eye to sin. But what it means is seeing the person for who they are. You see, love, when we draw near, reminds us Listen, it reminds us of who we were before we met Christ. It reminds us of the garbage that we lived in, apart from the saving knowledge of God. It shows us that not all sin is as a result of just disobedience, but it may in fact come as a result of disobedience that's done towards the sinner, that they know no other way of living than that way. And so we are to love in that way as Christ loved us. Notice, it, it goes on, it says, okay, you're to love. And we're to love that agape love. But notice it says, pray in Matthew chapter 5. Pray for those who persecute you. What that means is, instead of trying to figure out how to defeat or defend against this evil person, you are to go on the offensive and deliver that person up to the throne of God. And here's your three-part prayer request. Number one, when it comes to our enemies, the first, thing we, the first way we can show love is to pray that God would open their blinded eyes. You say, well, you don't know my enemy. There's no way they will come to know Jesus. Well, let me tell you, Jesus had an enemy in the New Testament. Jesus had one who persecuted against him. Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? And can I tell you, in shorter than a New York minute, in a nanosecond, Saul, the great persecutor, became a follower of Jesus Christ? You think your enemy, with all of their anger and all of their disdain for you and for Christ, are too far from the saving hands of God? Then you have diminished God and you have made your enemy God in his place. Everybody's savable. No one can run away from the Spirit of Almighty God. And we need to pray to that end. Pray that God would forgive our enemies of their sin, just as God was gracious to forgive us of ours. Number two, we need to pray that God would open our eyes to their need. Not just in salvation, but their need in life. To, their, a heart to forgive, a heart to show compassion. That's what we need to be praying for. So God, we want, I want you to save this person. Though they've brought me great harm, I want you to show them your mercy and your grace because that's what you've shown me. Please open their eyes. And two, Lord, open my eyes to their need. Through their violence, through their anger, Lord, what might I be missing about them? Let me never forget, Lord, that they've been created in your image, that they deserve honor and respect and compassion because you've created them a relationship with you. Number three, we are to pray that we might see, and this is the hardest prayer request of all, 
that we might see the hostility that someone else is showing us as a vehicle of God's good in our lives. The Apostle Paul said three times he prayed that the Lord would remove this messenger, this tormentor of the devil. And we don't know what it is. Some say it was his physical blindness that, that was an issue. Others believe it may have been a demonic presence sent to harass and, and, uh, and, and to fight against Paul. We don't know what that was. But three times Paul says, I want this enemy out of my life, Lord. I, I want it gone. And we can totally understand as we have enemies in our life how much we want them out of our lives. And three times God answers, no, I'm not going to take it away, but here's what I want you to know. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so some of us right now have enemies, and we're like, well, Lord, why aren't you removing this enemy? Lord, why aren't you just saving this enemy? Why, why aren't you just doing something so it will relieve me of the stress and the pain that this enemy is enduring? And little do we ever ask, might this enemy be here so that I might be changed? So that I may be made more like Christ? That God may use the hard things in this world to make me more mature in my faith. We playfully in God's hands, we pray. Notice next we practice selflessness. Selflessness. Here's where our love is so tainted. So we walk in and you were to say, are you a person of love? You would say, yes. I'm a lover. And it comes easy for me. But notice what, what Jesus says. Okay, you think you are good at this? For if you love, look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And so Jesus is saying, don't define your love on the basis of what you do for those who love you in return. Did you hear that? Stop defining that you are a lover, that you're following God's commands because you love your wife and you love your kids and you love your friends. God says even the unbelievers do that. Show me something more. You see, it's easy for us to be lovers of those who love us in return because it, 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 it is something that's very natural. You help me, I'll help you. And what we do is our love, listen, when our love is that way, it's very transactional. You do this for me, I will do this for you. And if you don't do it, then I'm going to struggle with love. What God is saying is our love doesn't have anything to do with what others do for you. Listen, this is so very important. When you look at your salvation, you brought nothing to the table. God did everything. You did nothing. And so what you need to understand is, is that God wasn't like, okay, if I save Tim at all, well, this is what I'll get in return. Here's what he gives. He gives the treasures of heaven, and I bring my garbage dump of sin. So our love cannot be defined as what happens in return. Well, I do this and my kids do that, or I do this and my wife does that, or here at the church I do this and, and the people of Village Bible Church do that. No, I serve out of selflessness. I am going to love with no ex idea or thought or expectation that you are going to do anything in return. Because that's what's going to happen when you love your enemies. 
they're not going to return the favor. And so stop patting ourselves on the back, thinking that we're loving the lovable or those who will return love back to us. That's not spiritual. That's human. It's when we love those who want nothing more than to hurt us. To love as Jesus loved us, coming to a world of unlovable people, to die for his enemies so that we may become the children of God. So why must we do this? Why should we do these things? Notice the three things that the text brings out, and I'll close. We do this, we love this way because it reflects God's character. Verse 45 so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, what does He do? He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen, what, what, what is taking place here is God is reminding us of a truth. You cannot drive into your neighborhood and know who the believers and the unbelievers are, right? Because their grass is just as green or white, okay? They're blessed with many of the same blessings, physical, earthly blessings, as you are. They have a wife and a kids and, and a job, and, and they're enjoying life. In some ways, maybe enjoying life more than we are. And here God says, even my enemies, I'm good to. I care for them. I see to their daily needs. I address what concerns them. I don't, as soon as they sin, send them to hell. Corey Penboom, who understands what it means to love one's enemy, said this, You will never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. Why? Because that's what God does each and every day that he lets the sun shine on the evil and the good. And so what we need to be careful is you say, well, how could it be that the Pharisees added to it this idea of hating their enemies. How could they have gotten there? Where they got, how they got there was they presumed upon God. In essence, they got into God's mind and heart and presumed that what they understood of God's mind and heart was what they were to do. And so this is how it funneled through. Well, if God um, has enemies, okay, and think about it, the whole book of Joshua is a book of God vanquishing his enemies so that the people of God can have a promised land. And, and what they said is if God didn't like the people in Jericho, if God didn't like the Amalekites and the Philistines and, and all of those different tribes and nations, well then we surely should not do that. And here's the thing that we need to be careful of because what we do is say, well, if God hates them, then I can hate them. And I'm only uh, pursuing God's character in that. Well, here's the thing. Just because God does something doesn't mean you get to do it as well. And here's the reason why. God looks and addresses things from a judicial standpoint. We don't. God knows the all in a circumstance. God has been a part because he sees things. He sees all things and knows all things and is around all things. God is aware of all that's going on. We're not. And so God, when he exacts judgment, does so not in a punitive way of getting a pound of flesh and seeking revenge. Like, oh, that's good. I want to keep pounding them. I hate their guts, for we know that God so loved the world. But don't ever diminish that God's dealing with sin 
it's done so in a judicial way. And so we need to be careful that just because God does something with a human being doesn't mean we get to do the same thing as well. And so understand, what does God do? That while he is judicial with his creation, he loves them, not giving them what they deserve until the time of his choosing. And that is between God and himself, no one else. Now notice, why do we do these things? Not only to, re- to reflect his character, but to receive God's commendation. Notice, he says, what reward is it if you just love the lovable? If you treat the tax collectors the same way, they do that. What makes you look different? What makes you salt and light if you respond in the same loving ways as sinners do? How can you be satisfied with that? So Jesus raises the bar. And understand this. We must, as believers, if we desire for God to say one day, well done, good and faithful servant, we can't just love those who love us. But we must be like Christ to love those who have wronged us, who seek to harm us. We are to love those who have every desire to oppose us in all ways. That is what we are called to do. Now, it's difficult. But God says, great will our reward be in heaven. Finally, we see that the reason why we must do this is God requires it and Christ commands it. In verse 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't want you to close your Bibles and think that we're done. This is a very important point because it's going to tie all things together. That word perfect is the word teleos. Teleos was used to speak of something that had fully attained what it was designed for. That it had reached maturity. It was spoken of a child who had become an adult. It denotes the idea of full development in contrast to those that are underdeveloped. It spoke of consummate soundness, the idea of being whole. So what does that mean for us? What Jesus is saying in verse 48, listen, this is key, is that you will never be a fully developed follower of Christ until you love like Christ loves. You will never reach the fullness of your maturity in Christ until you love your enemies as yourself. And so he puts this verse right after this treatise on love because he wants to remind you, you cannot love your enemies if you're not living out the Beatitudes. And so if you want to know if you're perfect, then you're loving your enemies and you're living out the Beatitudes because the only way you're going to love your enemies is through a Beatitude kind of life. That you're going to love your enemies to do so as to exceed the, the holiness of the scribes and Pharisees. What it means is if you're going to love your enemies, you're not going to respond in sinful anger. You're not going to treat people, even people close to you as your enemies, by lusting after their bodies. You are not going to treat your enemy, who may be your spouse, in that way by divorcing them. You are going to love your enemies, and that means you are not going to swear falsely by them or use oaths to deceive them. You are going to love your enemies, and that means you are not going to say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Understand the whole of what God has shared with us in Matthew chapter 5 is summed up in this word, love your enemies as yourself. Because when you do that, you're living out the Sermon on the Mount. When you live that way, you are pursuing the fullness of Christ. And so I call upon you, whether you have an enemy 
or anybody in between lovers and enemies in your life, are you loving as Christ did? And what that means is we will show patience and kindness and goodness. We will share the gospel of Jesus Christ even to their own anger so that we may share with them that which brings hope and brings peace to a sinner lost in a sin. Are you loving? Are you loving so much that they may see that you are truly salt and light? Because to love in this world is not a very uncommon thing. But to love your enemies is. And so how can you love those who hate you? How can you love those who have harmed you? For the glory of God. That is what is before us. And that's what's before you this week as you leave this place to a world that isn't very kind to one another. But God's truth is clear. Love even the worst of your enemies. Let's pray. Father God, another difficult passage before us. Much to think through and discern. But Lord, your word is clear. Whoever we consider our enemies, our only response in you is to love. And Lord, we don't have to look very far for the perfect example because it is how you have loved us. It means sacrifice. And it means at times, Lord, uh, going places that, that, that we would rather just not go to because it, it costs us too much from an earthly perspective. But Lord, I pray that, that we would be willing to do those things. Balancing your truth and your grace, knowing that those are hard things to balance at times, but Lord, that we would seek to do all that we can in line with your scripture to show love to all so that we may be called the children of the Most High God, so that we may be seen as salt and light, so people may look and say, there's something different about that person. They love their enemies. They love those who hurt them. Lord, I pray that in doing so, that we might win our enemies. What, what greater pleasure would there be in this world than to see your redeeming power at work in our greatest of enemies? Now, Lord, we know that if we pray that, that's not from an earthly perspective, but a heavenly one. So give us that heart, Lord. Empower us by your Spirit. Fill us so that we may see our enemies as you see them. And we may love them as you've loved them. So give us wisdom this week, Lord. Give us opportunity to love the unlovable so that we might be like you who loved us who were totally unlovable. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this opportunity. Now send us forth from this place changed by your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.